I predict opening weekend, a million dollars. You know when you're on an airplane and you suddenly hear those two chimes in mid-flight? I, I know, you hear those two things, like... What is that? My first thought is... What is happening with the airplane? And what's the deal with beef drop? I know. You walk on meat, you walk on toppings, you walk on buns, and you still finish building the burger. Are these burgers actually going to be served to someone? Don't you realize they're getting hamburgers that have been trampled on? And what is with the name Beef Drop? Is that the name of the restaurant? Who were the marketing geniuses behind that name? Would you go to a restaurant named Beef Drop? I mean, think about it. Beef Drop. Doesn't that sound kind of scatological? Do you really want to go to a restaurant that has that as its name? Beef Drop. All right, that's my time, ladies and gentlemen. I got to go. Have a nice day. Hello again, friends. Well, at least I hope it's friends plural at this point. And, well, I, I hope that you consider yourself my friends. But anywho, uh, it's Sean again with episode one of the Atari 7800 Homebrew Podcast. So, this is it. The first official episode of the official format of this podcast. So, uh, yeah, let's see how it goes. Oh, what could possibly go wrong? But um, anyway, as this episode is released, 2016 is winding down. However, at this time, Christmas had not yet happened, even though it will by the time you hear it. So I have no idea what I'm getting for Christmas, <laughs> what I got, whatever. Um, I didn't really have a lot on my list because, you know, I'm, I just, I, there's nothing I really want, really. <laughs> the only thing I really specifically asked for on my Christmas list was the uh, Atari Flashback Portable. So I'm really hoping to see that under the tree. So that'd be pretty cool. Of course, I will report back if uh, I do see that. But yeah, as uh, 2016 is going away, I know a lot of us are thinking good riddance, you know, what with uh, all these famous people that we lost this year and um, a presidential campaign that just seemed to never want to end. But hey, there were some good things about 2016 too. Um, for example, the Cubs won the World Series. I mean, yeah, I might sound a little bit biased because I'm uh, I live on the north side of Chicago, but truth is, whether or not you're a fan, you cannot deny the emotional significance that uh, the Cubs winning the World Series had for so many people. Many of whom, unfortunately, you know, left this life before they had a chance to actually see it happen. Uh, my grandmother, for one. Uh, yeah, if she could have held on for a little over seven more years, she would have seen it happen. Um, anyway, you know, living where I do on the north side. I, in fact, I live about two and a half miles up the road from Wrigley Field, pretty much. I can tell you it was seriously one of the most exciting things I've ever experienced. And uh, truth is, I don't even like baseball, but it was still freaking awesome. <laughs> Um, there are other good things too, at least for me personally. For one thing, um, earlier back in the summer, I went to Los Angeles for the first time. I'd always wanted to visit Los Angeles, but um, I 
didn't think I would actually like it because um, one person, I think it was my wife actually, who told me that L.A. is basically, uh, she said basically, if you don't like New York, you are not going to like L.A. And I hate New York. I, I don't mean to offend New Yorkers, but I just can't stand New York City. Well, Manhattan at least. Uh, so I wasn't expecting much from L.A. And, I, and from all the pictures I've seen of the neighborhoods and things, it looked kind of creepy. But let me tell you, I freaking loved LA. I w- I had the time of my life. We stayed in Hollywood, um, not too far from, in fact, walking distance from the Hollywood Bowl, which, by the way, is the most awesome performance venue I've ever seen. And went to Disneyland while we were out there. Never been to Disneyland. Been to Disney World a couple of times. I didn't think I'd like Disneyland, but I really did. I, I really had a good time there. But yeah, I, I really had a fantastic time in LA and uh, ho- hope to go back there before too long. Uh, San Francisco is still my favorite place in California, but LA is awesome too. What else happened? Oh yeah, I got a couple of world records on Twin Galaxies for the first time. Uh, the only arcade world record I have so far is on the Junior Pac-Man Turbo variety. So I, you'll see a score from me up there. That's not my highest score. Unfortunately, my highest score didn't get recorded, so I couldn't submit it. And there's some Atari 7800 games, mainly homebrews that I also have some world records on. My secret, by the way, getting world records on Twin Galaxies, play games that not a lot of people submit record attempts for. You know, that that's my strategy right there. Not many people played Asteroids Deluxe, so <laughs> I had to step in. It's like, okay, let me play it just enough to make it into the uh, the number one spot. And I feel kind of like a jerk for doing that, but still it's fun. And hopefully it encourages more people to play these games and get some competition going because that's a lot of fun. Uh, And of course, one good thing that happened to me in 2016 was this new podcast. At least I'm having a good time so far. This is only the first official episode, but hey. Uh, Oh, by the way, I need to extend some thanks to uh, some people that I forgot to acknowledge uh, in my episode zero here for one, my friend and podcasting partner, Jimmy G on the pie factory podcast. Uh, when I told him that I was considering doing this homebrew podcast, cause, uh, the no swear gamer didn't want to do it. He was very encouraging. So, uh, thanks. Thank you, uh, Jimmy G there for your encouragement there. And I also thanked Phil, the no swear gamer for getting it all started. But the thing is, I also need to extend credit to where else credit is due. A big thanks to Ferg, who, as far as I'm concerned, as far as many are concerned, he is the father of the game-by-game home console podcasts. He started it all up for us, myself included. And I got to admit, when I first heard the Atari 2600 game-by-game podcast, uh, it was actually an underground retrocade. I think I mentioned that uh, last episode. But uh, I was playing game there, and I heard this guy over the uh, AV system just by himself talking about Atari games and... uh, I said, what's this we're listening to? And Scott, the owner of Underground Rich Case, oh, it's a 2600 game by game podcast. You should listen to it. It's really good. And I don't know. I kind of had my reservations about it because do I really want to sit there and listen to just one guy talk to himself? And also, I always felt that if it's a single host, make it a blog, not a podcast. But then I realized, wait a minute, if I'm driving somewhere, I can listen to a podcast. I can't read a blog. If I'm on my bike, I can still listen to the podcast. I have a, uh, a speaker that I have that I clip to my uh, backpack if I'm on my bike and I mount my iPod to the handlebars. And when I'm on my bike, I can't read a blog, obviously, or I can't like 
look up stuff on Wikipedia, but Hey, I have a podcast I can listen to. So I was like, you know what? Yeah, let me listen. And sure enough, I got hooked on the Atari 2600 game by game podcast. And of course I listened to the 7,800 podcast since day one. So big shout out to Ferg for getting it all started. And what Ferg did for single host podcasting, at least in the home console community, as far as I'm concerned, is that he introduced basically a way to be useful and entertaining just by yourself. And well, here I am, and I hope I'm able to do that uh, for all of you. So, um, anywho, on Saturday, December 17th, I officially launched this podcast. I had episode zero in the can, as they say. And well, well, by the way, that means I actually had it recorded and ready. That doesn't mean I actually recorded it in the can. Uh, you'd be thinking of Ferg, of course. <laughs> but um, I had the podcast ready long before I launched it. So uh, I got the podcast feed up and running. I started making motions toward that a couple of weeks early, uh, right after Phil signed off just to make sure that it'd be ready to go. Because I remember when Jim and I did pie factory podcast, we, well, we still do it. Of course we still do that podcast, but when we launched it, it seemingly took forever. It took at least a week for stitcher and iTunes to approve, uh, the, the podcast. And so I just wanted to make sure I had plenty of time here. Uh, stitcher and iTunes this time, uh, pretty much turned it around in one day. So there might be people who by the time December 17th, rolled around, had already heard the podcast several days earlier. In fact, I know at least one person did because I got some feedback before the launch ever happened. And I also did uh, allow a few people to preview it. Uh, preview? It's an audio podcast. I don't know how they preview it. Pre-hear, I guess. Uh, all of you who uh, did preview it, you know who you are. Uh, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to listen and give me some uh, constructive feedback and unsolicited advice. And of course, I welcome all of you who are hearing this right now to please offer constructive criticism and, and unsolicited advice as well. Well, then again, I guess since I'm asking now, it's not really unsolicited, is it? Well, oh, well. Anyway, um, one feedback that I got, in fact, this is the very first feedback I got about this podcast. This comes from uh, Bobby, uh, signs his name Bobby Edad, which of course is Bobby Mirrored, if you look at it. Uh, a lot of you might know Bobby. But anyway, uh, Bobby says, good evening, Sean. I hope this all makes sense because I've had a head cold for a week and I've just finished Metroid 2 on the Game Boy, so my head is a little cabbaged. Um well, yeah, I guess the head, the head cold still makes your, uh, doesn't make your feedback any less legible. Uh, yeah, I've actually tried Metroid on the NES and I just didn't understand what all the attraction was to be quite honest. Uh, and there was one point where I got stuck somewhere and I couldn't find my way back out. So I just pretty much gave up. Uh, I, I really need to give that game another chance, don't I? But, uh, all right, anyway, uh, Bobby goes on to say, firstly, thank you for picking up the homebrew baton. I'd also asked Phil very early on in his run if he intended to cover homebrew and was disappointed when he said no, which I thought was a crying shame because quietly, I'm sorry, because frankly, I think if I were forced to list my top 10 fave 7,800 games, I think most would be homebrew. The quality of them is generally superb. Uh, you know, you know what, Bobby, I'm, I feel for you because anytime there, there were a couple of times when there was a call out for list of your top. Atari 7800 games. Um, when Jim and I were guests on Super Podcast Brothers on their top 10 Atari 7800 games show, they told us don't count homebrews, and that made it really hard for me. 
and when I uh, put my list together for Phil, my t- my top five and my bottom five, it was well, it, bottom five wasn't too hard because I don't know of any homebrews that would have made bottom five. <laughs> but yeah, I hear you there. Um, Anyway, back to Bobby's um, email here. Uh, secondly, you say you'll probably mention hardware occasionally. If so, could you cover the Mateos flash cartridge, please? I know people are waiting on the concerto still, myself included. Uh, that was Bobby, by the way. But my Mateos card is a wonderful, if fugly, uh, by the way, that means uh, frightfully ugly, <laughs> piece of kit. More to the point, it's readily available. I play all my homebrew ROMs using mine. I used to have to hack old carts to use EPROMs, but the flash cart means I no longer have to sacrifice old pole position two games to the greater good. Yeah, I hear you there. Uh, what else he say? He says, for the record, all the homebrew ROMs I speak of are the versions that are freely available on either the, de- the developer's own pages or on various Atari age pages. There really are a lot of them around, and it shows the generosity of the people in this hobby that they are willing to give away the ROMs for free to those of us who can't afford physical versions. The pricing of the physical versions is also a reflection of their generosity and is often priced to make the product available rather than to make the product for profit, unlike certain other consoles whose developers are obviously only in it for the business. $100 for a Donkey Kong port? Yet another MSX conversion, all the nope. Finally, in order to qualify for the Seagull 78 giveaway in episode 3, my current favorite homebrew has to be the Pokey-enabled version of the Pac-Man collection. Though it was a close call between that and the Berserk Frenzy combo, and I couldn't really nominate Beef Drop because although I have pre-release ROMs, I don't own the final released game yet. Cheers, matey, and all the best with the podcast. Oh, and happy late December time off work day to you and yours. All right, well, thank you, Bobby. Uh, yeah, I, I'm taking three and a half days off uh, after Christmas myself, so yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, but uh, yeah, Bobby and I have talked before um, offline about the Mateos card. Uh, those of you who don't know, the Mateos is one of those things that lets you load several games in it. I, I don't remember if it was six or 12. And yeah, it's not a physically attractive piece of hardware. It's pretty much a bare board, if I recall correctly. But Bobby swears by its usefulness. He also has good things to say about the developer. I will put ordering info for the Mateos on the, on the show notes page, which is at homebrew78.fab4. IT.com. And I debated getting that thing myself. Personally, I'm really, really waiting for the Concerto cartridge. Uh, for those of you who don't know, the Concerto is an Atari 7800 cartridge that lets you play games off an SD card. Like if you have the ROMs, you can stick them on an SD card. It'll let you play it off the SD card. Kind of like the Harmony for the 2600, which uh, I own, by the way, and it is a fantastic piece of hardware. If you don't have one now, go get one. Um, the concerto, um, it's been in development for quite a while, actually for several years now. And there were some pre beta versions that were sold at the Portland retro gaming expo last year. Um, the thing is, it's not really publicly available yet because they're still going through massive testing and they found that there are a lot of issues that need to be sorted out mainly because it behaves differently from one console to the next. And that's always been a kind of a problem with the 7800 is you never know how that console is going to behave. So I have a feeling it's still going to be a while before we see the concerto released. And also as far as 
from everything I can tell, it's a similar problem with the XM. They have to test the living daylights out of that thing, and that thing's been in the works for quite a while. But there are people that do have XMs in their possession. They swear it's definitely going to happen. Um, yeah, it's been a long wait for the Concerto and the XM, but I think it'll be uh, it'll be worth it. Uh, and uh, it might be worth checking out the Mateos as well. I'm going to possibly see if I can uh, pull together some money for that. Um, oh, yeah. And uh, Bobby, consider this your entry in the Seagull 78 giveaway. So, uh, so yeah, this is either a reminder to listeners of the prior episode or new information if this is the first you've heard this podcast. But uh, major thanks over... Major thanks to Ed Kelly. Major, major thanks to Ed Kelly at Edladen for his support. He gave me a Seagull 78 for giveaway in this show. So thank you so much, Ed. In case you don't know what the Edladen Seagull 78 is, what you do is you plug a Sega Genesis controller into the Seagull 78, and then you plug the Seagull 78 into the controller port of your Atari 7800. And what this device does is it gives your Sega Genesis controller two separately functioning fire buttons uh, that makes it fully compatible with two-button games on the Atari 7800. Without that Seagull controller, your Genesis basically functions as a one-button controller, and it's not useful for games like... Like, for example, in Xevious, uh, if you have the Ed Ladin and a Sega Genesis controller, you can drop a bomb and fire straight ahead with separate buttons. You can't do that without one of those unless you have... Uh, like the original pain line controller or another custom made Atari controller that does have separate fire buttons. Um, personally, I have one myself. I have a Seagull 78 and I think I mentioned this before, but I use it sometimes with a Sega sports pad when I play centipede and it works really, really well. Well, except that I think I need to fix my, my Sega sports pad because the trackball is not quite in line with the rollers. But anyway, if you want a chance to win a Seagull 78 adapter, here's what you need to do. You need to tell me the following. Perhaps if you don't have any Atari 7800 homebrew games, which one do you want the most and why? Or you can tell me um, if you do have some Atari 7800 homebrews, which one is your favorite and why? Or if you do have some 7800 homebrews, but there's one you're really, really, really dying to get, which one is it and why? You can email your response to me at homebrew78 at fab4it.com. You can post to the Atari 7800 Homebrew podcast page on Facebook, or you can tweet me at homebrew78. And the winner will be announced with the release of episode three. Uh, during the episode, I will announce the winner. This is episode one, so there are two more episodes yet. Oh, and Bobby also talked about playing 7800 homebrews on his Mateos cart. And yeah, many developers are very generous about posting the ROM files from their work in progress online. So if you're concerned that someone is playing the ROM files instead of just buying the games, well... Yeah, I really do wish everybody would buy the games and support the developers if they could. But truth is, not everybody can afford to, and they and they don't want to be left out of enjoying these wonderful games. And also, if these programmers didn't want you to play the games at all, unless they were on the cart, they wouldn't post the ROM files in a public forum, such as Atari Age. And that kind of brings me up to another point that I'd like to bring up. Now, from time to time, maybe on Atari's, there might be a user or two who decide to uh, to castigate um, if you were an Atari 7800 homebrew programmer for releasing a homebrew conversion of like an arcade game, maybe without getting clearance from the copyright holder. And I kind of want to address that. 
Now, here's the thing. As far as I can tell, the homebrew developers who do arcade conversions and other conversions, they do everything they possibly can to get in touch with the copyright owners and say, hey, can I get your blessing on that? And from what I can tell, usually the result is they're not able to even get in touch with anybody at all. And the way I see it, I really don't think major, major software developers and copyright titles to really old games are concerned about the Atari 7800 impinging on their profits or anything. Um, I have a feeling Nintendo might actually care, but that's all I'm going to say for now. But uh, one cool thing is I know of one homebrew developer who reached out for uh, f- for the copyright holder's blessing and actually got the original developer to help him with the game. So that I don't remember which one that, that it was, but uh, I thought that was really awesome. <laughs> but yeah, believe me, people who are doing these homebrews are not looking to rip anybody off. They're looking to bring some more fun to uh, the wonderful 7800 Pro system. I got to say, I got some uh, really positive uh, responses when I announced uh, the the podcast and posted the uh, the intro. I uh, got a lot of positivity over at Atari.io, so thank you guys. And this is interesting. Uh, I'm not sure how to pronounce this, but I think it's Rousedower70 says, does anyone on this forum actually own any 7,800 homebrews? <laughs> yeah, and then Atari LBC posted a picture of a bunch that... Uh, uh, he or she, I couldn't really tell. <laughs> I'm, so, I'm sorry, Atari LBC. I'm still kind of new to Atari.io, so uh, I don't know who's who yet a lot. But uh, Atari LBC says, I do. Some of the best experiences on the 7800 are homebrew. In fact, if it weren't for the constant stream of quality homebrew titles, I don't think I would be a big fan of the platform. It's exciting to see more people getting into it with the release of 7800 Basic. Good luck with the podcast and count me down as a subscriber. Well, thank you, Atari LBC. I appreciate that. But yeah, there's something that that Atari LBC said that I kind of want to address. Now, when Phil signed off on the 7800 Game by Game podcast, he could have like a big giant farewell episode. And it was was awesome. It was my favorite episode, really. It was a mammoth, behemoth, (laughs) three-hour podcast. It was, I, I was so hooked on that episode. I was, I was like on the edge of my seat. I really was. <laughs> Phil did a fantastic job with that. Well, he always does a good job at, you know, but, uh, Atari LBC mentioned a constant stream of quality homebrew titles. And the thing is with that said, I don't know if I'm ever going to have say a big grand finale or anything like that, because, What's going to happen is, yeah, the law of diminishing returns says there will be a time when I will have gone through every homebrew that I possibly could have, and then there's nothing left, but then you know what's going to happen. Someone somewhere down the line is going to come out with a new one, which means I'll have to do another episode. So, you know, so this is going to be interesting. I don't know how I'm going to handle it once I uh, run out of games, but I look at it this way. I look at it this way. Like, for example, I am looking at the picture that Atari LBC posted, and I'm seeing... And not counting Crazy Auto, I'll get into that a little bit later, but not counting Crazy Auto, I see, let's see, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, I can't tell the other ones, but I see one of them is actually a prototype and not a homebrew, but I'm going to say at least 14 right there. And if I do one game every two weeks then that's seven months right there. So that's going to be a while. And I know that by the time I get some episodes out, there are going to be more Atari 78 homebrews 
out on the market. Like for example, right now, as I record this, there are some homebrews that people are waiting to pounce on in the Atari age store that Albert hasn't released yet because he's still waiting for some pieces that aren't, that aren't available yet. I believe froggy was one of those. And oh my God, if you have not seen there is the, the froggy ROM has been out for a couple of years, at least it is freaking amazing. You would swear it was the arcade game. I can't wait for that one. Uh, Bentley bears crystal quest, of course. So with what exists in the world right now, this podcast is going to be going on for quite a while, at least, at least a year and a half. So <laughs> that's how things are going to go for me, I think. And uh, Ferg asked, when is your cutoff for submissions and all? And the thing is, I don't really have a recording schedule, so I don't really necessarily have a cutoff. So just go ahead and continue submitting even if it's several episodes after the game was already talked about, I can always use your feedback later on. So don't even worry about, say, deadlines. Uh, what I typically do is uh, record in the morning before I go to work and record this basically piece by piece and put it together later. And it's actually worked out pretty well so far. So that way I don't have to dedicate, say, two hours of my day that I'm, say, not spending quality time with my wife or doing other projects or something. It's just something I can do, like, say, for five minutes a day, and bam, it's done. Got a couple other feedbacks over at Atari Age. Trek MDs is very cool. Thank you. I hope, uh, hope you enjoy it. And S. Ramirez 2008 says, sweet, I've been waiting for a 7800 homebrew podcast. Me too, and I guess I had to be the one to do it. Uh, love the pick of you and your brother show notes during Christmas, 1982. Thanks for sharing. <laughs> yeah, that I have a feeling so many of us have a picture like that. It is just so classic. Uh, people open like that really, if those of you who are too young to know the early eighties, Christmas during the early eighties were pretty exciting times, uh, because that was the golden age of video games and people unboxing the Atari, uh, the, the Atari 2600 on Christmas. It was like, there was screaming and hollering. It was just, I, I just can't explain. It was just a great, great, great time to grow up. It really, really was. And the thing is my, when I see like what the Atari 2600 was worth, like I think the uh, list price was something like, $250 or something. I'm, uh, I know there are places that were selling it for like well under that, but, uh, with inflation and everything, it would have been worth something like $700 in today's money. And my parents have never, ever, ever been rich. And they sent me to Catholic school too. <laughs> so it really makes me wonder what the heck they did to be able to afford to get that for my brother and me for Christmas that year. We weren't poor by any means. I mean, we had cable TV and air conditioning and, and everything, but, and, and we lived in a tri-level house and everything. And my parents didn't have any credit cards at the time either. So I don't know what they did, but I don't know if they just got a really good deal somewhere or what, but, uh, just thinking about that and like that, that was a pretty expensive e piece of equipment for the time. It was really something to be able to open one of those. So yeah, thank you. Uh, thank you everybody for commenting over on Atari age and Atari.io. You know what? One bit of constructive criticism that I got, uh, was I, I didn't even realize this. The, uh, I, that, um, graphic that you see when you listen to this podcast, whether it be on your iPod or your Android, whatever, 
Uh, I just, in case you couldn't tell, I just threw that together really quickly just to have some kind of a profile picture. Uh, it's not the most attractive thing in the world, so I apologize for that. But what I heard back was that uh, if you are listening, say, on an Android or something, it's kind of hard to tell what podcast you're actually listening to because it doesn't have any text on it. <laughs> I never thought of that. That was that was uh, kind of uh, uh, ignorant of me. Um, I Hopefully, by the time you hear this, that will have been remedied. Uh, I want to send a big shout-out to my friend Keith Sheehan, who's also a, been a great supporter of Pie Factory Podcast, and already he's been <laughs> very helpful with uh, – uh, with the Atari 7800 homebrew podcast. So thanks a lot, Keith. Thanks so much. I think that's all we have in response to episode zero for now. So, hey, thanks so much for uh, for sharing your thoughts, everybody. So now that we heard some feedback, let's talk about this episode's game. It is... Beef Drop. Now, before I get too deep into Beef Drop, we got to talk about the history of Burger Time. For those of you not in the know, and I believe that's very few to none of you who are not, Beef Drop is actually a conversion of Burger Time. Now, Burger Time itself comes from a company out of Japan called Data East. Now, many of you who are longtime gamers are well familiar with Data East as a name. They originally called the game Hamburger when it was imported over here to the United States. The game was unique for its time. Because unlike a lot of other arcade games, Burger Time ran on Data East's Deco cassette system. Um, I don't know what Deco stands for. I'm guessing DE stands for Data East and C stands for cassette. But the Deco cassette system was a system that allowed arcade owners to change the games in a Data East cabinet without having to replace the entire cabinet. They'd pop a tape out, put another tape in. And all the game code was on that one cassette tape. And all you had to do if you wanted to get a new game was just order a game kit, and it cost between $350 and $450. That sounds pretty expensive, and it's expensive now, and it was even more expensive like 35 years ago. But still, that $350 to $450 was a bargain compared to having to get a whole new cabinet. What you would do is you would open the coin box, pop out a cassette, put a new tape in, you'd change the artwork on the cabinet with the decals that came with the game kit that you ordered. There was a fascinating write-up about this type of system in the September 1982 issue of Joystick Magazine, and I will put a link to that article in the show notes. Now, when Hamburger was released in the United States in August of 1982, it was renamed Burger Time, and it was distributed by Bally Midway under license from Data East USA. I'm sure that most of you, an explanation of Burger Time is probably not necessary, but hey, you never know if you're already familiar with the game and don't feel the need to keep listening to see if maybe I make a mistake or something, then this is your opportunity to go visit the Tinkle Pit, and the, um, the explanation should be done by the time you get back. Um, anyway, in Burger Time, you control a chef named Peter Pepper. Peter has to walk across several platforms in a setup that um, it's not too dissimilar from how Donkey Kong is laid out. As Peter Pepper, you need to build giant burgers. Every platform contains burger parts, and to build the burgers, you need to walk across those burger parts to force them down to the next level. And the platforms on the bottom and the top have 
the bottom buns and the top buns, respectively, and the platforms in between have all the other burger parts like uh, beef and lettuce, um, among other toppings. And as you walk across the burger parts, they fall down to the next platform below. And if they land on any other burger parts, then those burger parts are forced down to the next respective level, et cetera, et cetera. Think about that. I mean, you're serving hamburgers in which every single bun, patty, and topping have been walked on. Well, almost every single one. <laughs> Sounds sanitary and appetizing, doesn't it? But while you are building these giant burgers, you are chased by enemies in the form of giant anthropomorphic foods, such as eggs, hot dogs, and eventually pickle slices. The enemies also have names. The eggs are all called Mr. Egg. The hot dogs are all called Mr. Hot Dog. And the pickle slices are all called... <laughs> are, you, are you ready for this one? They're called <gasps> Mr. Pickle. <laughs> It's interesting they all have unique names because there are multiple instances of each one of them. Like, you'll have several Mr. Hot Dogs, several Mr. Pickles, all on the screen at the same time. But, oh well. Naturally, if one of the enemies touches Peter Pepper, then Peter Pepper loses a life. Peter Pepper does have a few defenses, though. He can temporarily eliminate enemies below him by walking across burger parts and forcing said burger parts to land on the enemies and crush them. Or if he's being chased, he can walk across a burger part, which will send the burger part down the screen along with any enemies that happen to be on said burger part. And also, if at least one enemy is on the burger part, that burger part's actually going to fall multiple levels, depending on how many enemies are kind of riding it, I guess. Peter Pepper's other defense, now here's probably why he's called Peter Pepper. He also has a pepper shaker. What he can do is stun the enemies by shaking pepper at them and render them harmless for a few seconds. And sometimes one shake of the pepper can t actually stun more than one enemy. So you got to use your pepper efficiently. The stage ends when Peter Pepper builds all of the burgers on the screen. You got six different stages, all with different layouts. And once you clear all six stages, you start over at the first level, but at a faster pace. You would start the game with five shakes of pepper. And depending on how the dip switches on the uh, machine were set, you would typically get three lives, maybe more. In terms of scoring, you earn 50 points each time a burger part falls. If you drop a burger part on top of Mr. Hot Dog, you get 100 points, 200 points for Mr. Pickle, 300 points for Mr. Egg. If you drop a burger part that has an enemy um, on it, you get 500 points. You drop a burger part that has two enemies on it, you get 1,000. Uh, three enemies, you get 2,000. And of course, with each additional adversary, you drop along with a burger part. That score doubles, and it caps out at six enemies for 16,000. Also appearing periodically are pepper bonuses. The pepper bonus appears after every fourth burger part that goes down to uh, a plate. So all the way at the bottom of the screen, every time a burger part gets there, every fourth time, there's a pepper bonus, and it's on the screen for a limited time. If you pick up the pepper bonus, you are given an extra shake of pepper. You also get bonus points depending on what pepper bonus item it is. 
If you grab the ice cream cone, which appears every third stage starting with stage one, you get 500 points. The coffee cup, which appears every third stage starting with stage two, gives you 1,000 points. And a pack of french fries, which appears every third stage starting with stage three, that will net you 1,500 points. And depending on how the dip switches on the machine was set, you may or may not have gotten an extra shake of pepper for completing a stage. Also, depending on how they set the machine up, you could get a bonus life at 10,000, 15,000, 20,000, or 30,000 points. And finally, the arcade machine can be configured to release either four or six enemies onto the screen at once. Now, it probably goes without saying for most of you, but Burger Time was massively popular back in, in the 80s. And because it was massively popular, it found its way onto many, many, many home video game consoles. The Atari Video Computer System, aka 2600, had a port of it, and it was notorious for being incredibly slow. Intellivision had a port that I thought was pretty decent for what Intellivision was. Many people loved the Intellivision port. I know some people who don't, but it was a it was actually pretty good. ColecoVision had a version of Burger Time, as did the Mattel Aquarius and the Nintendo Entertainment System, and many home computers had Burger Time. And there were other platforms, such as a uh, handheld LCD game made by Bandai. And here in the United States, it was licensed to Mattel. I had that Burger Time handheld, actually. It was a stocking stuffer one Christmas. I gotta say, for an LCD game, it was actually pretty cool. And I remember it was actually a pretty popular device. Burger Time itself, the popularity of Burger Time actually helped spawn some uh, sequels that not many people really know about. There's Peter Pepper's Ice Cream Factory, Super Burger Time, Burger Time Delight, and Burger Time World Tour. And a lot of home platforms that did not have a, a version of Burger Time had different Burger Time clones. One such clone I can think of is there was one that was really, really well done for Linux and Unix systems. And it was called Burger Space. <laughs> See what they did there? They took uh, uh, they took time and took it out and used another dimension. They called it Space. <laughs> Whatever. You may have noticed that there were two platforms that are glaringly missing in what I talked about that had burger time, specifically the Atari 5200 and the Atari 7800. And that's where a gentleman named Ken Siders comes in. On April 1st, 2004, um, and uh, you're going to find out in just a moment how significant that uh, particular date is, but on that date, Ken Siders posted in the Atari 5200 section of the Atari Age message board a picture that was supposedly a prototype of an Atari 5200 version of Burger Time. So Ken implied that there were plans to rip the code from said prototype and post it so everybody could play it. Some of the graphics and some of the gameplay kind of had an unfinished vibe to it, and possibly with some glitches inside it. So that made it pretty plausible that it was an actual prototype. However, some users expressed, well, quite frankly, pretty understandable suspicions because Mattel had exclusive home cartridge distribution rights to Burger Time, and the label that was pictured on the prototype that was posted didn't match up to a typical Mattel labeling scheme. Eventually, Ken posted a three-digit numeric code that you could type on a uh, 5200 controller, and that code would supposedly unlock one of the two levels that had been left out. And I should mention that there was a three-digit code that would make the game a vegetarian-friendly version of, of Burger Time. 
Instead of the extra level, though, users found an April Fool's Day message from Ken. It wasn't a prototype at all, but actually a homebrew work in progress. Now, both before and after that joke came out, many Atari Age users had given Ken's Burger Time homebrew high praise, and um, it was very, very well-deserved. Ken spent a lot of time fixing bugs, finishing unfinished business, added some missing characters, and he tweaked the colors before he eventually released it in cartridge form for not only the Atari 5200, but the Atari 8-bit computers. Um, as many of you know, Atari 5200 was basically an Atari 400 or 800 without a keyboard and a few minor tweaks. So conversion between the two formats is pretty easy if you know what you're doing. Uh, personally, I don't know what I'm doing in that regard, so you're never going to see me do that, at least not anytime soon. But anyway, by the time this had all happened, Ken was considering renaming the game, possibly as a way to not attract unwanted attention from, say, Burger Time's copyright holders, so he rechristened the game Beef Drop. He also renamed the characters. The chef was not called Peter Pepper, he was simply called Pete. The enemies in Beef Drop are named Frank, Mr. Yolk, and Dr. Dill. The manual refers to them as adversaries. The layout of the platform and the burger parts is identical to that of the arcade burger time. The gameplay and the scoring are also the same on uh, both the arcade version and in Beef Drop. Now, in that summer, summer of 2004, there was a label design contest for Beef Drop, and Henry Lee was named the winner for his, quite frankly, excellent artwork that, uh, that was on both the cartridge label and on the manual cover. In 2006, Ken ported Beef Drop to the Atari 7800. All three versions, there's the 7800 version, the 5200, and the 8-bit version, are all available on the Atari Age store, and I'll put a link to uh, I'll, put, I'll put links to those in the show notes. In fact, there were two versions of Beef Drop for the Atari 7800. There was what's called the VE edition, which only uses Tia sound. That's the sound chip from the Atari 2600 that uh, nobody likes. And there was also a version with Pokey sound. In fact, I think the version with Pokey sound uses both Tia sound and Pokey sound on the same. As far as I know, right now, only the VE version is available. Now, on the version of the cart that has Pokey, uh, what happens is the Tia has most of the sound effects, while the Pokey provides the background music, and that little sound that happens that basically tells you, you're out of pepper, bucko. Beef Drop ships with a cartridge and a manual, but it doesn't come with a box. Um, however, there is a guy over in Germany, a gentleman named Mark Oberhäuser, I believe. I, I don't really speak German, but I did once read how to pronounce German, and I think a umlaut u is pronounced oi, so I think his name would be Mark Oberhäuser. If I'm wrong, it's probably just Mark Oberhauser. But anyway, he designed a box specifically for Beef Drop, uh, he does fantastic work on uh, box design. His particular box for Beef Drop is actually labeled as Burger Time, though. So uh, if you're very OCD, you might, you might not like having a Burger Time box for Beef Drop, but hey. Now, in terms of high scoring, I like to talk about high scores on video games. The highest score that I know of is when Beef Drop was the game that was played during Season 5 of the Atari 7800 High Score Club on Atari Age, starting June 25th, 2012, and ending July 8th. 
Highest score on default normal settings, Oyama family with a score of 504,250. I'm going to have to sit back and watch that video sometimes. Oyama family typically posts videos. Uh, so you, that way you can watch and see what the strategies that, uh, that Oyama family used and all that. Now the Atari 7800 version of Beef Drop has some Easter eggs, and I'm not going to talk about those right now, but uh, you'll hear what those Easter eggs are and how to trigger them after the closing theme of the show plays out. So, in fact, anytime I talk about a game that has Easter eggs, known Easter eggs at least, I'm not going to talk about those Easter eggs until the very end of the show in case, uh, in case you don't want to be spoiled, in case you want to figure out how to discover the Easter eggs yourself. So, anyway... That's pretty much what I have to say about Beef Drop and its history on the Atari 7800. Now, as for some strategies to playing Beef Drop, I can offer a few. Now, most people who play Burger Time and, I assume, Beef Drop, their goal is to basically finish the levels as soon as possible. So, a uh, typical strategy is to guide Peter Pepper, or Chef Pete as the case may be, all the way to the top of the screen and have him build the burgers from top down of dropping the enemies with the burger parts, so that way they get the burger parts all the way down as quickly as possible, and ergo finish the level as quickly as possible. Now, that's a good strategy if you just want to be done with the level like as quickly as possible, but if you want to really maximize your score, here's what I like to do. Instead of building the burgers from top down, I actually tend to build them from the bottom up. Now think about this. If you minimize the number of drops you make, you're also minimizing the number of points you can amass during a particular stage. So that's why I start from the bottom tier, and I try to make the enemies fall with the burger parts every single time. So that way I get bonus points on every single tier of the screen. And if you do this right and your timing is good you can actually end that level with a significantly higher score than if you start from the top and go down. However, you got to be warned that if you don't execute that strategy well, you're going to find your score doesn't really increase that significantly, so it would make the, uh, well, I'll admit it's a tedious way to finish the level, so if you don't do it right and if you don't do it well, it might not necessarily be worth it, but after you practice it for a while, it's pretty, uh, you'll find you'll get a significantly higher score than you normally would. Oh, and speaking of trying to make enemies fall with the burger parts, keep an eye on the enemies. For the most part, you'll see, uh, pardon me, adversaries. They're called adversaries. Um, like I was saying, for the most part, they actually move in a particular pattern. They'll go up or down one tier, then left or right to the next ladder, then up and down another tier, and so on and so on, kind of like a zigzag pattern. Use that to your advantage because you can kind of predict where the adversaries are going to go and you can use that to make your next move. Now, under certain circumstances, though, uh, one of the adversaries might veer from that pattern. Um, I find that Mr. Yoke, or if you're playing Burger Time, Mr. Egg, tends to be the adversary that's most likely to deviate from uh, the zigzag pattern. As for my opinion of Beef Drop, well, I... I think I warned you during episode zero that rating these games would be difficult, if not really impossible and unfair. But quite simply, Beef Drop is a fantastic game. Now, of course, just taking Burger Time itself into consideration, it is a fun, unique game. It's challenging. And in terms of the conversion to Atari 7800, I gotta say, Ken Siders did a great job. You can go to the Atari Age store and get the game. 
I'm pretty sure, I think I mentioned this earlier, but I'm pretty sure that right now the only version available is the Tia version. But if you can track down the Pokey version, even better, because the Pokey version is almost arcade perfect in every respect. Now let's see uh, what people have to say about Beef Drop. Now on the Atari Age forum, I asked for feedback about Beef Drop and or Burger Time, of course. And Toiletune says, I first played Burger Time in the arcades at age eight or so. I enjoyed it, but they didn't keep it for very long. After that, I got a bootleg floppy disk and played it on the library computer. Next came the 2600. I played it for years. It was a top 10 favorite until I started seriously collecting many years later. I eventually got it on the PS1 and hated it. Too fast, bad controller. After all, I was used to the 2600. I sought out the NES version. It was okay, nothing special. Finally got Beef Drop on Concerto. Uh, Toilet Tunes must be one of the lucky people who has a uh, Concerto <laughs> that was available very shortly with uh, uh, possible bugs. Anyway, uh, Toilet Tunes goes on to say, and it felt just right. It's my home port of choice. Shortly thereafter, I installed Pokey. Perfection. Beef Drop is one of my go-to games for 7800. And by the way, the reason Toilet Tunes was talking about installing a Pokey is that uh, I believe the concerto, as it currently exists, uh, or at least the ones that uh, people have received, do not actually have pokey chips in them, but you can install them at a later time. So that's probably why he mentioned that. Uh, but anyway, thanks, Toiletunes. Uh, man, playing the 2600 Burger Time for years, I feel bad for you, man. <laughs> you know, that version would be okay if it weren't so slow. But uh, I'm not going to get into that right now. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm. I know what you mean about those PS1 controllers. I'm not a fan myself. But uh, and I agree about the NES version. It's uh, you know, it, it's fine. But there are better versions of it. Uh, so yeah, I totally agree with you. And Trevor says, for me, early to mid '80s exposure in the arcades of the original Burger Time was a blast. I recall thinking how cool it was for food to be chasing a chef. The concept of making burgers and the, and the theme centralizing around building them did make me think of Wimpy from Popeye back in the... <laughs> actually, Ferg says we can say back in the day again, so back in the day. <laughs> Thanks, Ferg. Uh, not, anyway, going back to what Trevor says. Not sure if it was due to there being an arcade Popeye game around the same time frame at the place where I primarily played, Nathan's, but undoubtedly all the cartoon exposure was a factor. Anyhow, I don't recollect being great at the game back then, but always had a fun time playing. Yeah, me too, me too. Enter Beef Drop from Ken Siders. This is some great porting of an arcade classic. Pokey Sound featured is the icing on the cake, if you're lucky enough to get one of those cartridges, by the way, with a Pokey. But the cake itself is what really shines. Colorful, well-designed characters capturing the arcade spirit and look beautiful, including all board layouts. Prior to Beef Drop, having played it on the 2600, I was content at the time. That's, that's two in a row who, who talk about playing the 2600 and didn't really say anything terrible about it. <laughs> that's Hey, that's absolutely fine. I love the Atari 2600 Pac-Man, so that's totally okay. Um, anyway, having any home version period was practically good enough for me in those days. It was so cool in my eyes, block graphics and all. 
It wouldn't be until the 90s, though, that I would acquire or at least play other ports, such as the Coleco version. Very good. Yeah, I agree. That is very good. C64, very poor. I don't think I've seen that one. Um, anyway, and the NES, which is disappointingly only a decent port at best. Beef Drop is my definitive and go-to home port of Burger Time. It plays really well, having not just one, two, or three difficulty settings, but a total of five. Child, easy, normal, hard, expert. Did I mention I don't think I mentioned that. Thanks for mentioning that, Trevor. Uh, anyway, Trevor says, It is near impossible to imagine any player at any skill level not discovering a setting that they find both enjoyable and challenging. Since this is not a game that requires constant use of the fire buttons, except to throw the occasional pepper, in addition to there not being any real fast and or hairpin directional movements, any controller, joystick, or gamepad, for the most part, should work really well. Uh, Trevor, I think some people who hate the pain line controller might disagree with you, but but then again, if you're if you're very conservative about your peppers, it might work fine. But uh, anyway, uh, going on, Trevor says, if missing out on the original pokey sound and left with the Tia Value Edition. Thank you. I was wondering what that VE stood for. Uh, the value addition for audio. The background melody is still respectable, although losing a little scoring and overall enjoyability. Uh, nonetheless, it is no 7800 Donkey Kong in the sound department. And again, we're talking icing on an already delicious cake. A must-have on the 7800 for the arcade enthusiast or for anyone that enjoys a well-playing and well-crafted game. Ported over excellently. Needless to say, highly recommended. Um, I have to agree with you on that, on the sound there. Uh, and it's definitely better than the 7800 Donkey Kong. Um, the Tia version of Beef Drop, I don't really like the sound on that myself. Well, the sound is okay, but the, the music, all you have is the melody. If you have the pokey version of it, you hear not only the melody, but also the little, like, counter point underneath it so it's a little bit more fuller personally i just find the standalone melody to be kind of annoying uh, um, i don't have the ve version so i don't know if this is possible but can you i'm just wondering if you can maybe disable the music if you want to i think you could do that on the 2600 version uh, with one of the difficulty switches i might be wrong about that though um but anyway trevor thank you so much for for that feedback there uh very very good uh, information right there then we have Atari Kid 81 who says, I will be in the minority on this one, but I am not impressed with Beef Drop on the 7800. The graphics are, quote unquote, muddy, low resolution. The way the chef moves up and down the ladders bugs me badly. He looks as though he, quote unquote, vibrates up and down versus climbing. I personally think the Intellivision version is far superior. Yes, Beef Drop, a.k.a. Burger Time, of course, is an incredibly fun game, but I liken it to pizza. Even when it's bad, it's good. And no, I'm not saying that Ken Sider's versions of Burger Time is bad. It just doesn't blow me away, either. I figure with the capabilities of the 7800, it should be the definitive 8-bit version. Cleaner, clearer graphics, perhaps at 320p. <laughs> uh, 320p... Uh, Kind of hard to explain what that is, by the way. Uh, this is Sean talking, not uh, Atari Kid 81. But I think what they're referring to is like, say, uh, uh, if you get the full arcade resolution onto the cart, which uh, uh, if you do a search on Atari Age uh, in the 7800 forum, Bob DiCrescenzo did that with Pac-Man and Ms. Pac-Man, where you would swear it was the arcade graphics. Uh, but then there was some scrolling involved and stuff. But uh, anyway, moving on to uh, what Atari Kid 81 says. So he says, clearer graph, clearer, cleaner graphics, and better sprite movement would have been incredible. 
On the positive side, Mr. Siders performed well programming the Tia sound. Now, let the bashing begin, and no, I am not a troll. <laughs> Thanks, Atari Kid 81. I don't know about everybody else, but I personally don't find that to be trolling. I mean, that was some, you offered some thoughtful um, criticism on Beef Drop. I don't know exactly what you mean by muddy or low resolution. I, I can kind of get what you're saying about muddy, low resolution right there, because it's not a million percent arcade quality graphics. Uh, like for one thing, like the, uh, uh, Mr. Hot dog for what, or Frank or whatever his name is. Oh, <laughs> uh, the hot dog character doesn't look a hundred percent like a hot dog. He looks a little bit angled, almost kind of like a, like a, I don't know. I, I'm not, I don't think tamale would be the right word, but kind of up on top of the hot dog, you can see a little bit of uh, angular stuff going on right there. And this is one statement here that I need to address. And I know other people in the thread have the way the chef moves up and down the ladders bugs me badly talking about the vibration thing. That is a holdover from the arcade version. That is actually faithful to how Peter Pepper moved in the arcade. And in fact, I do believe the Intellivision version is uh, pretty similar to that in that regard. But yeah, the way the chef goes up and down, he kind of bobs in a way, which is why I kind of think that maybe those aren't actually ladders, but staircases that we don't really get to see in full perspective, which would kind of explain why he doesn't hold on to anything when he goes up and down. And the same thing with the, uh, the other characters as well, how it doesn't look like they're grabbing on anything. They're just kind of walking down. But yeah, again, like I do want to emphasize Atari Kid 81 says, uh, uh, Ken Sider's version of burger time, AKA beef drop isn't bad. It just doesn't blow them away. And that's fair. That's absolutely fair. Um, yeah, the Intellivision version, I was actually in, in retrospect, I'm actually surprised it wasn't better than it was. I actually think it was pretty good. It was the Intellivision version, but one thing I, that makes me kind of question things is that the Intellivision was a 16-bit system. It was a 16-bit system. It really was. So why couldn't they get better feel over it? Uh, why couldn't they get a better feel in that game? The Intellivision Burger Time, it's kind of, they don't have a, a, a full screen on it, if you will. It's like they only use like half of, uh, or, or maybe two-thirds of what's available I think you only build three burgers per screen and, um, and whatever, because the graphics are much bigger than they usually are. I don't really understand the technicality behind it. So, uh, you have to forgive me for that one, but, um, thank you for that Atari kid 81 and jinx says I played them all. And I think I own all system carts of burger time and the Intellivision has the best controls and the best sound. Don't ask me why. Actually, I do like the sound of the Intellivision Burger Time. It is really good, especially the music. Uh, anyway, Jinx goes on to say, It is like they made one great Intellivision game, and everything I played after, to date, sucked. Donkey Kong, etc. Yeah, I, I hate the Intellivision Donkey Kong. <laughs> Uh, let's see. Jinx says, I like the 7,800 version as well. It is not a bad port. I have never played the version with pokey sounds, so I do not know what I'm missing. The vertical jerkiness. I got to use that phrase in something, uh, like maybe an album title or something. The vertical jerkiness when climbing ladders does seem odd, but the overall gameplay is good. 
The Burger Time theme has to be one of the most repetitive and annoying ever to no fault of the programmer. That's just how it is. I'm not the biggest Burger Time fan in the world, so that does not help my feelings of reviewing this game. Best part is no crashing or glitches, which is sometimes rare in 7800 games due to the system differences. Yeah. Yeah, tell me about that. Like once in a while, my food fight suddenly stops drawing the level. I forget that. Uh, so it was programmed exceptionally well with all the elements of the original there with great enemy AI, uh, artificial intelligence. I've never seen the original as of, I am, okay, this I'm having a hard time. I am never seen the original as of late over 30 years in an arcade. Uh, hmm. I, okay, that was worded kind of weird. Uh, I've, I've never seen the original as of late been over 30 years in an arcade. Wow. You got to come down to the Chicago area there, Jinx, <laughs> and uh, check out uh, Underground Retrocade and Galloping Ghost and Pixel Blast. But <laughs> anyway, uh, after looking at Trevor's video, yeah, because Trevor posted a, uh, a video in response to, um, to Atari Boy 81 with, uh, with Beef Drop. After looking at Trevor's video, it makes sense now. Some opinions are made by education on a subject, and I am no expert. Uh, thanks for the explanation. And I think, I'm not sure what the explanation was. I think it might've been from, uh, cause Trevor responded to it, Atari kid 81. He says, just an FYI, the look is always vibrates up and down. There's climbing is just like the arcade original is intentional. Um, that's okay. One thing I have to address with jinx here is he says, uh, the Intellivision has the Intellivision version has the best controls and the best sound. A lot of people might stand up in horror at that best control thing. Cause that little dial thing on the Intellivision has gotten so much flack. Uh, I, I really want to defend that thing. It's not bad. If you figure out how to properly use it, you don't basically, I don't remember who told me this, but someone told me this years ago and, um, it was somebody on Atari age, I think actually basically do not treat the dial like a D pad. For example, if your thumb is on the down portion of the dial, you're moving down and you want to move left, don't just go straight left on your dial. Actually rotate your thumb over to the left while you're holding it down. And once you get used to that, the control is a lot easier. That really helped me a lot when I was playing some Intellivision stuff before. And also, Intellivision, I know that there were some little adapter thingies you could stick over the little disc thingy on the Intellivision so that you could have a, an actual joystick. Uh, my cousins had that on theirs, actually, and that was really awesome. It, it really helped a lot. Yeah, the repetitive and annoying thing. <laughs> yeah, I think I'm, I might have mentioned before that I'm not a huge fan of constant music in games. Burger Time never bothered me, and in fact, it's the point now where... If Burger Time does not have that music in it, it just doesn't feel quite right. And so I'm glad that the same music is in Beef Drop. I really am, especially the pokey version. But I'm generally not a fan. It's like, what's the point of music? Oh, and I do believe I forgot to mention, you actually can uh, disable the music by toggling uh, the difficulty switches. So you can give that a try if you don't like that music. I think in Gyrus, Gyrus is an exception. Gyrus, the music helps really make that game. It's so amazing. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, thank you for uh, for your thoughts on that, Jinx. Cafe Man says, I can't imagine you could make a better port of Burger Time. Frankly, Burger Time itself drives me crazy. I can only take it in short doses, so I haven't played this as much as I should have. The 5200 version is also very good. 
Love the pokey music on the 7800. I wouldn't play it with just TS sounds. I'd like to hear the podcast review of this game when it is published. Well, good. I hope you're listening to this then. <laughs> Concerning the chefs vibrating up and down the ladders, isn't that the way he is supposed to move based on the original coin? Yeah, 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 absolutely. And I'm going to have to agree with Cafe Man about the, uh, you couldn't make a better port of Burger Time, at least for the 7800. I think this is the best you can probably get for, for the 7800. Uh, and I did look at one of those uh, Let's Compare videos that shows... Uh, Pretty much every known version of Burger Time, except it didn't have burger space in it. I don't think it had the Linux burger space, but it had Beef Drop in it for both 5200 and the 7800. And I gotta say, a lot of the other versions of Burger Time didn't really impress me from that video. Uh, the Amstrad didn't impress me the least. The Nintendo version, I th- like, I, like I said, it was it was okay, but nothing earth shattering. Uh, Really, the 7800 version, I really, uh, it, as far as I can tell, that was overall as a whole, I think, impressed me the most out of all of them. Uh, yeah, there were a few differences, like some of the other systems, the, the Peter Pepper uh, sprite was much more arcade accurate, I guess. But uh, yeah, I have to agree with Cafe Man. So, uh, so yeah, thanks a lot, Cafe Man. And Golden Wheels says, one of my favorite 7800 games the Burger Time cab was in my orthodontist's office as a kid, and I got to play it a lot. Beef Drop feels just like going to the orthodontist's office again without the braces tightening. Great game when I constantly pop in for quick plays. Yeah, thanks, Golden Wheels. Yeah, I, I pop it in pretty frequently myself, actually. And what's crazy is in the arcade, I don't really play it all that much. I'll play maybe one, maybe two rounds of Burger Time, and then I'm done with Burger Time for the day. Uh, I don't remember why the arcade, I don't play it as much. But uh, anyway, I also heard from another uh, Pie Factory listener who decided to check out uh, this podcast, uh, Mike D'Angelo. Thank you so much, Mike. Uh says, I have to admit I do not own any homebrew games for the 7800. When I purchased my Atari 5200 Atari Max cart, it did include Beef Drop. I haven't tried the 7800 version, but I am very impressed with the 5200 one. This is actually one of my go-to games when I fire up the 5200. Very curious about the KC Munchkin homebrew. Always loved the Odyssey 2 version. As you heard earlier, Ken Siders did do the 5200 version of Beef Drop 2 as well. I don't know. I might be alone in this. I might not be alone by far. I'm not really sure. But from what I can tell, I personally like the 7800 version better. It just seems to be a little bit more sharp, a little bit more smooth. But your mileage may vary. Um, As for Casey Munchkin, um, all I'm going to say is stay tuned. Uh, thank you so much, Michael D'Angelo. Um, and let's see. I think that's all we have in feedback. All right. So thank you, everybody. Um, I think that's actually going to do it for episode one of the Atari 7800 Homebrew podcast. Hope you enjoyed it. I had a good time recording it. Feel free to send in um, any feedback to homebrew78 at fab4it.com. You can comment on the Facebook page. You can comment on the Atari 7800 Homebrew podcast thread on Atari Age or Atari.io. And we're also on Twitter at Homebrew78. Oh, and of course, like any other amateur podcaster, I have set up a Patreon account for this uh, podcast. 
Those of you who are familiar with Patreon, well, you can probably uh, skip the next minute or two. But uh, what Patreon is, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, it is a way that you can donate a little bit of money every month. If you choose to, if you would like to help monetarily support the Atari 7800 Homebrew Podcast, you can go to patreon.com slash homebrew78. And what will happen is you sign up to donate X amount of money per month. And every month I'll get a donation from you. Uh, it could be as little as a dollar. Um, if you choose not to donate or if you cannot donate, hey, then just plain don't. Just uh, hopefully enjoy the podcast. But uh, basically, I'm not getting paid for this podcast. In fact, in a way, I'm kind of losing money over it. Um, so anything you can do to help would be nice. So if you can contribute, that would be nice. And I will be eternally grateful and, um, I don't know what further to say. And I am very grateful that you're just listening as it were. So if you're listening to this, I honestly, sincerely thank you so much. I'll talk to you again next time when I discuss Casey Munchkin, a homebrew by the legendary Bob DiCrescenzo. Now, if you'd like to play along and send in your scores, set the game for random mazes. Cause I want you to get the feel for all the mazes. The score that I'm working with here is 476. This is not only the end of episode one, but it's also the end of 2016. Um, I hope that 2017 turns out better than 2016 did, um, especially with all the famous deaths. Um, on my other podcast, on Pie Factory Podcast, I kind of made some death predictions. So if you want to, if you want to hear some gloomy stuff, keep uh, paying attention. Unfortunately, I'm predicting we're going to lose Glenn Campbell this year. He's, he's in pretty bad shape with uh, Alzheimer's. Unfortunately, uh, there's a wonderful documentary out there called, uh, I'll be me, which is about his final tour and shows him going to the doctor and dealing with his Alzheimer's and stuff. It's a very emotional watch, but, uh, I hope this isn't true, but I'm guessing that the last surviving member of the classic temptations is going to go in 2017. That'd be Otis Williams. Uh, one thing that I hope does die in 2017 is Harambe jokes. I mean, come on, just stop it. Everybody it's old. It's over. It's overdone. Just stop it. All right. But anyway, in all seriousness, please, please have a great 2017 I'm going to try to make it the best that I could possibly make it, and I hope you all do the same. And uh, thank you for listening, and remember, please give these hardworking homebrew developers the support they deserve. Happy New Year, everybody. Remember the mailbox sketch that shocked America? Don't you get it? The mailbox was Haldeman. All right, now it's time to talk about Easter eggs. How many Easter eggs is this? Well, we're going to find out right now. But uh, anyway, Beef Drop has at least one Easter egg, and I will tell you about how to activate it right now. So if you don't want to be surprised, you want to find it for yourself, well, then stop listening right now. Now, with the Beef Drop game cartridge already inserted into your 7800, and assuming that your 7800 is powered down, here's what you're going to do. You're going to hold down the pause button, and you're going to turn on the console, but don't let go of the pause button until you see the game menu. Once you see the game menu, 
I believe at that point it should be safe to release your pause button and you're going to see some new options. There's going to be an option for vegetarians. If you choose that option, instead of beef patties, you're going to have lettuce. If I'm not mistaken, this came from an Atari age discussion about beef drop in which somebody expressed concern that the game as it exists would simply would imply slaughter of animals and that a veggie friendly version of the game would be nice. But, uh, yeah, come on now. This is a video game, folks. It's a video game. It's not actual food. Your character is being chased by giant food. If you're so concerned about the game implying the slaughter of animals, then are you concerned about, say, Outlaw on the 2600, which implies murder? Or perhaps animal cruelty and crossbow? Come on, it's a game. Anyway, I digress. Um, another Easter egg option that you'll notice is Atkins. Now, what's Atkins? Well, instead of buns, you get lettuce. So basically, if you don't play a standard version of this game, something's going to be replaced by lettuce. You'll notice also there's an option to toggle what's called mirror mode, which means that the platform is reversed. For example, if you see, I don't know, a ladder on the far left of the screen, but not in the right, then if you choose mirror mode, it's going to be backwards. You're going to see that ladder on the right and nothing on the left. So that's what mirror mode is. It means it basically turns the, um, the platform around. A lot of the platforms are kind of symmetrical, so you may not notice the difference right away, but that's what happens. Everything that would be at least starting from the left would be starting from the right, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Also, if you have a numbered beef drop cartridge, uh, mine actually is numbered. I believe mine is number 60. I mean, yeah, I have it right. Well, you know what? I could check it right now. It's right here. Yep, 60. I remember when I first got that, I thought, is that really how they're going to number it? Just a little sticker on the bottom of the cartridge? Until I realized if you do the Easter egg, you will see your cartridge's number on the screen. So when I perform the Easter egg, I see 60 on the screen. And there's one other thing that uh, Trevor actually posted about this on Atari Age. I didn't realize this, but another menu option in the Easter egg menu is more which is four additional boards. After you finish the original Burger Time boards in Beef Drop, there are four more if you choose the more option. So thank you for that, Trevor. That's it for the Easter eggs. Talk to you next time.